you see these cameras all over. You can't commit any kind of crime anymore without somebody having a camera. We need to just remind ourselves every day our work is for the benefit of the patient. If you can't see patient benefit in what you're doing, why are you doing it? So hi, this is Rick Bicotta, Risk Management Monthly, August 2020, coming to you with Greg uh, sitting at his house in Ann Arbor. Greg, hi, all right, you okay Rick, up there? Rick, it's it's just great to hear you. You know, this is the hottest time of the year in Michigan. I mean, it's it. I think it got to 55 or 56 <laughs> yesterday. I don't, mean, it's it's really don't be difficult. Don't smarty pants now. <laughs> yeah. you know. Now we're we're doing we're doing just fine. Um, uh, COVID has been a very strange actor as to the way things are actually happening around here. I mean, all kinds of restaurants have four people sitting in them, uh, and yet somewhere here in town, of course, this is the home of the University of Michigan. There are people who think they're going back to school and are getting up having parties at two o'clock in the morning. So let's say it's not strict adherence to COVID rules here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Actually, that uh, it's different here. I mean, people do wear masks here. Uh, we were kind of like a hot spot for a while. Uh, yeah. I, still, I think we still are. But, uh, you know, we don't really have much choice about this. And you and I are both in the um, age range where it would be kind of nasty to get this uh, disorder. So we're, we're avoiding it. We're hunkered, my wife and I, uh, pretty much so. However, we've yeah. got a great issue coming up uh, for you. Uh, one of the things we're going to do uh, later on is an interview with uh, Ken Tots. Ken is a uh, emergency physician graduated law school two years ago and is um, sent us an email about a new FDA guideline regarding the mandatory or not mandatory, uh, strongly recommended prescribing of naloxone in the setting of emergency physicians uh, where uh, it's really quite, quite broad ranging. And he's going to be talking about that um, later on in the program. But I wanted to get started uh, with yeah. a case. I'm going to do this case. Uh, Zach Olson is a young emergency physician who has gotten interested in the malpractice end of what we do. Excuse and me, Ricky. I think his name is Olson, not Wilson. Did I say Wilson? Yes, you did, sir. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm looking right at his name. I think it's – I'm losing it, man. <laughs> we could have told Zach you that Olson. years ago. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. In any case, Zach sent us a case. He's going to be looking up cases for us in the future, and is going to be kind of our, our point person to getting some of these cases and uh, presenting them to us. This case comes, came from um, Reading, Pennsylvania. Are you familiar with Reading, Pennsylvania? Oh, Reading beer from the 50s and 60s, Greg? Yes, I am, as a matter of fact. And uh, remember, uh, Pennsylvania ain't that far from Michigan. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time over there and we share uh, Lake Erie together. So uh, we have some connections with the Pennsylvania folk. Rick, go ahead. This was written up in the uh, Reading Eagle uh, 
back in December of last year, but it was also written in, uh, up in some other places. And I think it's a very provocative case. It's a case to where, thank goodness, I, I wasn't on call or on seeing the patient uh, and it was somebody else, but this was uh, a very uh, troubling case. Yeah. So this is a 11 year old girl who presents to the emergency department uh, with a complaint of persistent vaginal bleeding. Now, obviously in these summaries, what persistent means uh, is un unclear. We only get, you know, a little kernels from these things of uh, what these cases are about. But in this case, the plaintiff attorney said, they basically said it was menstrual bleeding at an early age and not to worry about it. Uh, however, the uh, plaintiff's attorneys asserted that the uh, emergency physician negligently failed to order an ultrasound or conduct an internal exam. And so I would like to stop here. And Greg, how many internal exams have you done on an 11 year old child? Yeah, very few. Uh, now, we understand that all of us get presented with uh, child abuse kinds of situations, but sometimes we will do an external examination to see whether it prompts us to bring in other other resources. Um, I've done very few uh, pelvic examinations on 11-year-olds. Uh, the other thing is, it almost sounds like we're blaming somebody from nine months ago who didn't diagnose uh, what this, this child had, as if there weren't opportunities in between for there to be multiple other examinations of this child, Rick. Uh, you know, that's true. But as you know, the reason we're only talking about this case is because there's a horrible outcome here. Right. And, and it's like a one in a million kind of case. And so it's like you've got this 11-year-old girl. And, you know, fortunately, where you are, you could refer them to some pediatric hospital where they could go there and take care of this. They could, you know, ketamine this girl and do a sedation-based uh, exam down there uh, because it does need to be looked at. If uh, the fact of the matter is, is that to assume that this is menstrual bleeding in an 11-year-old girl is uh, is a uh, maybe that's a reasonable assumption, but it's a dangerous assumption because if you're going to be wrong. You're going to be very wrong. Yeah, well, the, I, I think it's a reasonable assumption if this bleeding stops in a few days, if it's accompanied by other signs of, of uh, maturation taking place in this child. Uh, but if you've got things that are going on over a period of time, then it does need um, interdiction. It needs somebody to, to see the child, but they don't need to be seen uh, in a day or two. They can they can be sent to somebody who does pediatric gynecology when there are these problems. And I think it would be wrong for emergency doctors to think they had to make this exact diagnosis that night in the emergency department. Well, that's what. Uh the lawyers are accusing the doctor of is, is, is doing an incomplete exam. Actually, there, it doesn't sound like there is really any exam of the uh, affected parts. And I think that 
there's this move afoot, Greg, to say that ultrasounds swap out for pelvic exams. And uh, if Diane Birnbomber was on this call, she would just freak because she is so opposed to it, the, this idea. And I think, actually, if you, if you had a problem with a tooth in your mouth or some other kind of disorder, wouldn't you have the doctor open your mouth and take a look? That's where yes. the problem is. That's where the orifice is. And I'm going to take a look at the orifice. Yeah, so I'm one of Diane's supporters on this issue. And that's simply, uh, you know, we examine the part that's the problem. Now, to say that it has to be done that day, that week, uh, is probably not correct. But you might as well get somebody who actually knows what they're doing looking at this problem. And most emergency docs, you know, I saw 140,000 patients in my career. We don't see that many 10 or 11-year-olds who are having vaginal bleeding. And, and again, we don't know all the other symptoms that may have been going along with this, but it does need to be investigated. Right. So I, we both agree that this doctor was not necessarily negligent unless he he didn't uh, actively assure that there was going to be follow-up in this case. And, you know, you live down the street from the University of Michigan. There are a lot of people who are in rural areas where this would be a, a real substantial hardship to go find a pediatric hospital for the further evaluation of this child. And, you know, the family doctor, they're, they're not, they're going to have the same issues of how are they going to do a comfortable exam. But I think it's kind of worth making some effort to look down there and to feel around. And, you know, I don't know that a ultrasound would necessarily be the standard of care. However, what is the standard of care in an 11 year old girl who's got uh, vaginal bleeding? There is none. I mean, what, what, what frame of reference? I'm going to be very candid. I don't think I've ever seen an 11 year old girl with bleeding. So I, I feel for this emergency physician for sure. But unfortunately, nine months later, she was diagnosed with stage four cervical cancer. Now, obviously there was a big interim time period here and who knows what happened in that period but how not much she could have had a child in that <laughs> length of time rick bottom line is nine months and nothing else happened that seems real odd to me yeah and you know maybe a pregnancy test might have been indicated here and um uh but in any case there's a bad outcome terrible outcome she underwent a, a pelvic exoneration where she had the removal of bowel, bladder, rectum, anus, vagina. Uh, she had a colostomy, urostomy, and nephrostomy tube. She had experimental uh, treatments. She had multiple other surgeries. She had chemotherapy and radiation. And her life expectancy was limited to 25 years of uh, being 25 years old, which is sounds to me, frankly, like um, a long period of time. But during the court um, conversations here, the plaintiff submitted over a million dollars in medical bills uh, for this uh, yeah. poor girl. She was 15 when this thing actually went to court. So 11, 
to 15. That's four years. Isn't there a, a thing about uh, a, a speedy trial here yeah. in the United States? That's right. for crim criminal things. Not That's criminal things. Yes. The other thing is, in, in, the, in the civil law, as you and I deal with it, I've testified in probably uh, half the time I've gone to court. They've been uh, three or four years since the incident. I, I don't think that that's necessarily the problem. One thing for sure is it, it gives the plaintiff the advantage of time to know how bad this child is going oh, to yeah, be absolutely. and how much they're going to need. Yeah, this uh, the is award, The award was $9.6 million. Uh, $4.5 million was related to future medical bills. The hospital was found 40% negligent. Uh, now, I don't, you know, we don't have enough detail. Was the emergency physician employed by the hospital? Um, I don't know what they could have done negligently as a, a hospital entity. Uh, there was a medical group that got 10%. The OBGYN in this case, so I guess there was some kind of referral here was considered 50% liable for this award. Obviously, this is beyond the, the limits of most physicians' uh, malpractice insurance. Right. Uh, even, even though hospitals are moving to pressing all of the physicians and medical staff to increase their limits from $1 million to $3 million, and um, that... Uh, that move, I think, has been, I don't know how successful it's been. It was at our hospital oh, a good, you know, 10 years ago. I don't know whether they dropped it or not uh, because the uh, we've had other discussions about whether it's worthwhile to increase your limits. And uh, I think one of the things about it is if they know you have increased limits, they'll go after increased yeah. limits. When you go. Uh, in front of, of a judge and jury, they don't know all the financial interactions between the various doctors involved, the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. But the hospital knows that it is uh, the deep pocket on most of these cases. It is good when you take a job to ask that question in the lawsuits that have taken place here. Has the hospital stepped up and paid their share? Have they done their contribution if there's a bad case? Because unfortunately, uh, if they haven't, you may be the only person left that, that, that they can sue for future earnings. So uh, be careful about this. Think about it. You know, we've been generally been told that uh, these lawyers don't want your house. They just want your limits. And so if they have a, an award that's $3 million and you have $1 million um, uh, limit, uh, that, that, uh, they want the hospital to pay that difference. They don't yes. want you to pay it. Well, they, know they you, don't, you don't want you to, but you know what, Rick? They will take what you've got if, if they can get it. Uh, none of us like that, but it could happen. In this particular case, though, I have to feel sorry for everybody. My heart bleeds for this child. This is a horrible disease entity. Uh, they they were dis they were disemboweled uh, with the surgery. Uh, the the parents must have gone through hell. 
the doctors here, nobody expected this. This is uh, where sometimes bad things happen to good people because I can see comes into an emergency department, 11 years old, could be an early onset of menstrual periods. This is not a simple case. And uh, any, anybody who thinks there, there's any hero in this one is just wrong. No, actually, uh, the plaintiff's attorney uh, described this uh, ch uh, child as uh, terminal. One final point in this case, this, uh, I looked up this uh, OBGYN, and uh, unfortunately, she is having other problems. Uh, in 2020, uh, she was having some substantial issues with the medical board in New York State. Although you and I know that the New York State Medical Board is a very aggressive uh, medical board towards physicians. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, Rick. All right, so let's move on to uh, our next topic here. Uh, uh, in 2017, we did, in the October issue, and all of you who are subscribers have access to all the old issues. So if you want to, go back and look at October 2017. It was, it was about recordings in the emergency department. That article was entitled, Can Patients Make Recordings on Medical Encounters of Medical Encounters? Uh, what does the law say? This was published in uh, JAMA, August 8th, 2017 issue. And uh, I think we're very concerned about that. Most recently, however, there's a paper written by a couple of people that we know. Um, it was entitled, Audiovisual Recording in the Emergency Department, Ethical and Legal Issues. This is by Ken Iserson et al., American Journal of Emergency Medicine, in press, in press means you have no idea what issue it's going to actually land in. Um, and I don't know how you find it to tell you the truth. Uh, it, it, it take up to a, you know, six or eight months to, for, for it to land in an issue. So we, you can tell, I can tell you what month it is, but that's not there now. Um, Ken Isherson did it with, um, Joel Geiderman. Joel is, uh, had been the director of the emergency department here at Cedar sinai Medical Center, which is an extraordinary hospital here in Los Angeles. I mean, it's a community hospital, but it is enormous in terms of its size, and they have a big emergency department, and Joel was the director. And Joel has written multiple articles in the past focusing on medical ethics. Uh, and in fact, some of the articles that he wrote on medical ethics actually come to play in this article, but we'll, we'll get there uh, a little bit later. Two of the other authors I don't know, uh, but this is kind of right down the alley of legal and, and ethical about photography in the emergency department. I did look up Cedar sinai Medical Center just to kind of get a sense of, of it. It has 10,000 employees. 10,000. I bet you your hospital, University of Michigan, doesn't have 10,000 employees. Probably doesn't, Rick. And remember that that, that hospital is hospital to the stars. I mean, uh, the uh, everybody <laughs> who's anybody has had medical care at Cedar sinai You know, uh, that's that's kind of true. The um, They've gotten in trouble a number of times for 
employees accessing the records of, you know, the Kardashians or whoever else is coming through there for uh, a, a problem. Uh, they basically developed this zero tolerance policy. You look at somebody else's record, you're out of there. Um, I don't, I don't drive over that part of town very often. You know, there's this separation east side of LA is USC focused west side of LA is UCLA focused. And you don't, the two sides really don't talk at all. You know? there's, there's a, there's a line here. So let's talk about this paper. Right. The first thing that they got into is healthcare workers recording patients. You know, this is that you want to take a picture of that rash or that laceration uh, or the like. And uh, they basically get into a couple of things that you uh, should consider here. They say that the the uh, permission slip that when they come in, the, uh, this general consent form, yeah, it, it ought to contain the uh, ability to take photographs, they say. However, those are all signed under duress, more or less. You come in, those things are all in... Well, now it has to be 12 point type, but before it was like tiny type and uh, your, your belly hurts, your ankle hurts, something like that. And they give you the, these five pieces of paper, sign here, sign here, sign here. You know, you're not, nobody is expected to read that. So I think that that personally would really not serve as an adequate um, consent for medical photography. Uh, they basically say you got to tell the person uh, what you intend to use that picture for if they give permission. They suggest that you show them the picture that you're taking so they can see it, that uh, they <clears throat> are allowed to withdraw their consent for the distribution of that picture um, after you tell them, well, we're going to use it in a lecture or we're going to put it in slides or it's going to be in a book or something like that, they have the ability to withdraw their permission before that picture has been disseminated. Uh, they also say, don't use your own iPhone to be, to be taking these pictures because two things, that's not secure. And secondly, the patient thinks, hey, they got this picture of my whatever it is on their personal telephone uh, and that doesn't look very professional that you're gonna take it home with you. So they basically said, use a specially designated secure uh, a phone for taking and transmitting any kind of pictures. Like you want to send a picture of a rash to a dermatologist, picture of EKG to a cardiologist or something to that effect that you basically uh, tell the patient uh, about that. Yeah. And I think as long as you notify the patient that this is for medical purposes, it's going to another health professional, we're going to control this just like we would any other information we obtain on you, I don't think you have a problem, Rick. But I think assuming that everybody's okay with, with it is the mistake. Tell, tell them that they have an option and they may want to exercise that option of not having a picture taken. It's the option and the offer of that option which is which is important. Uh, they say that photos uploaded to consultants are advised to be erased um, from the recording device. Uh, so these things are 
in the in the gray zone between ethical and 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 legal because bottom line is if you get their permission and you document that they gave her the permission that and you and they give them the option of re, of withdrawing their permission i think that is the core of this thing but these other yes. things are um nice they also say frankly if you send transmit a picture to you know a consultant and you're using your own phone that you advise the person that this is being sent on an unsecured line and there is some additional risk of that being found out on the internet and um that that only be fair and and i think that you know all of those things seem pretty pretty reasonable i do like this idea of telling people what this photograph is going to be used for in terms of educational purpose. Sometimes you don't know it's going to be in a lecture. It's going to be in a book. It may be all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but they, they do want to know it's for medical purposes. And I'll tell you, in all the years I did this, I don't think I had one patient who didn't let me take a picture. The other thing is the vast majority of pictures we take, you can't identify the patient. It's not like we take a full frontal view of your face. If it's a broken wrist, if, if it's a foreign body, if it's an infection, you can't identify the patient from those pictures. Although, Greg, you've seen lots and lots of pictures, pr primarily in older books, where they have a black bar over somebody's eyes. Yes. Now, that, that doesn't work. That, that, <laughs> that, that you. I know who you are underneath that black bar over your eyes kind of thing. You know, Rick, one of the things that they the pointed that you out. Remember, you remember that tells me when you went to medical school <laughs> and when you bought those textbooks, because I think most of that stuff is not being done anymore. Well, listen, man, you aren't far, far behind me, you know. <laughs> yes, I understand. Well, listen, uh, let's let's point this out as well. Uh, you taking a picture and using it for medical purposes, I basically never see that as a medical legal problem. Where I've seen the problem is somebody in the next bed uh, wants to take a picture. In fact, I had a case of a kid who would come in and had been uh, pulverized by a, uh, a mother's boyfriend they're taking pictures, and the guy who's there for another purpose on the patient in the next bed starts taking pictures of this kid who's been abused. Now, all of a sudden, there's a fight going on between the parents and this guy who's wandered in to take pictures. I think that's the kind of stuff that, that you do have to be you you do have a job to protect the privacy of the individual patient. Oh, sure. There's no no question uh, there. Uh, what about incapacitated patients? Somebody comes in from a, a, a big trauma. They're uh, not conscious. Uh, there is the uh, opportunity to take pictures of this injury, that injury, the like. Um, they basically say, if you are going to take pictures of incapacitated people, you have to ask permission as quickly as possible of that patient when they are able to be answered that, yeah. or a, a surrogate decision maker, like you know some family member, if you can do that. And again, uh, 
these people get the right to withdraw the permission subsequently uh, when it's going to be used. And actually, this is where Joel was very um, influential in Los Angeles because about mm, at least five years, six years ago, there was a TV, you know, it's probably longer than that. There was a TV show where they basically showed real patients in the emergency department. And uh, they might, you know, blur out their face or something like that. And by the way, blurring out the face is not considered to be um, giving patients privacy. So don't even consider that is in terms of a legal um, escape. Defense, right, yeah. So no, I think that Joel was right in that, by the way. He, he sort of led the charge on that, and he was correct, and that is, why should somebody be wandering around shooting a for-profit television series in the department and utilizing people who have not given permission? I, th- I think his point was very well taken. So that basically shut down uh, the uh, videoing of that that show in it, but it also shut down, I think, uh, maybe too much so uh, the photography of cases in the what we call booth C. In USC, they had a booth, actually a double booth, where all of the nasty cases would go, all the sick, super sick patients would go, and they had a camera permanently set up shooting down on that uh and that booth, and um, they base, and that was all about you know educational purposes. Now, were patients asked whether it was okay? No, this camera just ran, and so uh, it was not consistent with current beliefs about asking permission and retroactively asking permission, etc. It was not done for commercial reasons; it was done for educational reasons. But that that went away uh, as well. Um, they basically suggest that um, advise regarding the setting in which the photographs will be used. We got that covered there. Um, destroy after use. Um, oh, yeah. If you take a pictures and videos of somebody and they're being used for educational purposes like the Grand Rounds or the like, they basically say that those uh, photographs should be uh, taken and observed in a HIPAA-compliant environment so that not every Tom, Dick, and Harry can enter and watch that with you uh, if they have no reason or business to be there for your grand round presentation. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And and I think in general, most of our uh, training programs are are cognizant of that fact, Rick. They they are not passing these films around they, they don't go up on a board in somebody's office. I, I, think, we're, I think we're more alert to this uh, problem today than we've ever been, and we should be. Uh, I mean, the job of the patient is not to entertain the rest of the medical staff, and uh, we've all been involved in those cases. Well, you know, I really like the idea that uh, they brought out the patients receive no direct benefit from these photographs. And so therefore you have to be particularly careful with uh, who sees them and the environment in which they are seen. Uh, They point out lastly here, oh yeah, you want to take a picture of that rash uh, or that cut. And there is no way that a person could be identified uh, with that rash or that cut. 
they say you still need to ask permission of that person for that photograph to be taken. It's yep. not, it's got nothing to do, frankly, with the ability to identify that laceration or, or, uh, um, it's just a, I think it's just a courtesy. Can I take it? You know, I won't show your face. They won't know about it, but I like to take it. Yeah. And I had plenty of, uh, plastic surgeons who, who photograph extensively particularly on traumatic wounds, that sort of thing. And uh, they consider it an absolute essential part of their management program. And, and for those physicians and in what they do, uh, I understand why they do it. Uh, here's a quick one. Healthcare workers or institutions recording staff members, they say it may be perfectly appropriate if you're trying to document systematic sexual and uh, non-sexual harassment, wastefulness, illegal activities, and incompetence or similar issues. But they also say you got to be really, really careful when you do that because um, the employees basically, uh, you can't be putting up cameras in the bathroom kind of thing. The uh, employees are allowed privacy in areas where they think that there is privacy due that 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 it's it's really dangerous activity. They basically say such recordings may be ethically appropriate if the activities number one, harming patients, okay, if the activities run counter to good medical practice or they re uh, run counter to the law. So they're talking about video surveillance, but you have to be careful because they point out this case in San Diego, where they thought some staff were pilfering drugs. And so they set up a hidden camera, but unfortunately the hidden camera was in the room where they were doing pelvic exams and the like, and there, there were naked women photographed in the process of doing this. And, uh, it got out that that was happening and the women were not very happy at all. No. Uh, so in this case, uh, it turned out to be dangerous because they say relegate this to professionals who are aware of all of the potential dangers and will try to limit them, but it doesn't exclude them by any means. Nope, exactly right. And I think that uh, we need to just remind ourselves every day, our work is for the benefit of the patient. If you can't see patient benefit to what you're doing, why are you doing it? Because uh, you're not the police, you're not a lot of other things. So be careful before you start to step on people's toes here. It's, it's, it's not a good thing. We've all uh, dealt with the drug problem in the past, but I think you just have to be extremely careful when you start to photograph people and keep those photographs. They also get into this idea of healthcare workers recording themselves. I am not familiar with healthcare workers recording themselves, but they give an example of a doctor recording discharge instructions to a patient and giving them that file so that they can kind of refer back to it. I would suggest that you be very careful doing that. There was a study um, of patients uh, and if a video was taken like that and given to the patients, 11% of the surveyed patients said they might use them in a malpractice claim. So yep. they're just basically saying at all times be professional and appropriate. And I, I think the idea of 
you recording yourself in the emergency department is, um, unless you're doing it for a distinct purpose, uh, um, as part of a program, I think it's dangerous business. No, I, there's no question, Rick. And and uh, we had one paper, I think it was British, um, that that talked about exactly that uh, situation where where people uh, were recording uh, these interactions. Be careful what happens to them, who destroys them. Uh, do, do they sit around where people can listen to them? I don't think it's a good idea. Well, uh, you, you will have people come in and say to you, I'm recording this interaction. Well, that's, and that's a different story. Uh, this yeah. is about healthcare workers recording themselves. Yeah. Yes, the one that you're bringing up is the mo one we're most concerned about, where the, a person wants to video you, a patient or a family member wants to video you or the procedure that you're doing. They point out that if a family member wants to record their relative, they have to ask their relative's permission. And right. they want to record you, they have to ask your permission. And we're going to get into some of the uh, caveats on that in a, in a second. Because Mtala comes into play here. Yeah, and you have to understand that that person who's got a camera and is recording in the department, are they just recording one person? Are they recording multiple people who have not given permission? There, there are problems here, Rick. Well, it, this gets into this idea of, of surreptitious recording, yes. where you can do an audio recording, and people have done that, and... Um, some bad things have happened uh, with um, surreptitious recording. They may be in violation, however, of state law. And certainly there a there's a civil component here that if you um, video somebody against their will, put it up on the internet, and that inter uh, video discredits them, disparages them, embarrasses them, or anything like that, then you be bear uh, some kind of civil risk here as well as criminal risk. And we'll talk about the criminal risk in a second. So yes. if you discover somebody who's surreptitiously recording, you should ask them to stop and you should ask them to re re erase the file. Visitors who are recording surreptitiously may be asked to leave the um, patient care area. And um, although there's no data on surreptitious recording in the United States and and specifically in the emergency department, there was a survey done in the United Kingdom that found that 15% of respondents indicated that they had surreptitiously recorded an encounter with a medical professional. So I think that that is, you know, substantially higher than I would have guessed, but you know, that's in England, it's not in the emergency department, but I think in the emergency department, it might be even higher. Um, sometimes providers who are doing the surreptitious recording are doing it to um, document what they believe to be atypical behavior, probably on your part or some nurse's part or the like. Right. They, or they're documenting the situation the, the, uh, where this encounter is taking place. So they're taking a picture of your absolutely packed waiting room. Uh, and basically that all should be done. You know, they're doing it with, you know, you know fundamentally, decent intent, but to the extent that they post that and spread it around and disparage you, they are, are, are in trouble. So, ASAP has a policy about this stuff, but uh, you know, it's, this is a hospital business. 
This is absolutely hospital business. And I promise you, your hospital is not happy about people wandering around taking films of the people working. We actually had someone at a large hospital near Detroit who went around and and taking pictures of people in the emergency room, uh, workers in the emergency room who were sitting down. And they brought this, they wanted to bring this as evidence in their malpractice trial that they weren't getting the care they uh, deserved because so many people weren't working. Now, the judge did not allow that to be shown, but it raised an interesting question. I mean, how many people, remember the the, the old story about uh, uh, somebody came running in at, at the Vatican and yelled out, Christ is coming down the road. He's coming to see us. What should we do? And when somebody said, look busy. And I think that's exactly right, that uh, you, you don't know how this stuff is going to be interpreted by somebody who is looking at it in a, another uh, situation. By the way, that is the only case I know of in Michigan where a, a film, a uh, video taken in the emergency department by the family was, was they tried to get it submitted as evidence in court. You know, there was a surreptitious uh, video of a California emergency physician uh, just be demeaning and, and berating a patient merciless, mercilessly. And um, that got out. And uh, you, can, you can look that up on um, YouTube. And this, she basically, not only did she lose her job, there was a push for her to lose her license that she was so abusive to this person. So you got to be real, real careful. You know, this, it was a, it was a great video of a, of a physician who is basically just losing it, you know, uh, just, uh, just, just losing it really uh, pretty sad to see. Now, this is the things that comes up about consent in, uh, most of the States, you only need, one party to consent to a video, and that is the person taking the video. They don't even need to ask your permission to take a video um, in terms of the state law. However, there are 11 states where they can't take a video of you without asking your permission, and I'm going to read those, and those are back from our October 2017 presentation. Those are California, Florida, Illinois, you're in good shape uh, at Maryland, Michigan, Massachusetts, Montana, New Hampshire, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and Washington. If in California you take a video of somebody against their will um, or, or, or without their consent, California law provides up to a $2,500 fine and a year imprisonment in prison for a violation. Well, there's nobody in prison now anyway. Everybody's free on COVID. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, obviously, hospitals should post warnings. Now, you know, the, the authors of this page, it's, pa- uh, paper said, you know, put the warnings in registration in the waiting room and uh, in the um, patient care areas as well. You know, I don't think you want to overdo it. And I think you want to do it in a nice way. I think you want to say something like, for the privacy of our patients, 
um, no recording is permitted. Right, right. I think I think that's the reasonable way to go here. Uh, bottom bottom line is, you do have to help protect the patient's privacy, your patient's privacy, and you should not let other people uh, get in the way of that. Uh, last thing is about law enforcement uh, coming into the department here, and you know uh, they don't get to take over your place. And, you know, most people treat them with substantial deference. And I understand why. And, you know, uh, they're, they're there to protect you if you get into some trouble, et cetera, et cetera. But they're now all wearing these body cameras. And it's like, well, uh, what can they shoot and not shoot in the emergency department? Um, Florida passed a law that basically says body camera, ca camera videos, um, are unlawful if they're made in a private residence, healthcare or mental health setting or social service facility or any place where a person would have a reasonable expectation of privacy. There's some law in Florida, which sounds like a good idea. There was a survey, 74 major police forces in, the, in this study um, wore body cameras now. Only 18 had policies requiring vulnerable individuals to consent before they are videoed. Um, they start videos when they anticipate there may be some potential uh, crime, like if they do a stop of your car and they are concerned that you may be driving erratically or you may be intoxicated or something like that. And they start those videos. Um, whether they can do that in the emergency department or, or not is another matter because there was a video taken, Greg, and I think you saw it, where a, a nurse was asked to do a blood draw on a a victim of a traffic accident, a victim right. of a traffic accident. I think this was in Utah. And she refused, and she read the policy to the policeman, and they're recording all of this, and um, she basically refused. And then the cop said something to the fact then you're refusing to, to, to do what I'm asking. And, and they said, under that case, you're under arrest. And he physically grabs this, this nurse and is hauling her out to the emergency department, all of this being videoed uh, to his cop car, where they stick her in the cop car kind of thing. And then there's another video of this discussion between the, that cop and his supervisor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The bottom line is what she did was perfectly right. She the person that they were asking for blood to be drawn was is totally inappropriate, uh, should not have been done. The nurses have, should not have agreed. She stood her ground, and uh, this cop just went off and, and got aggressive with her. Uh, that got settled. That cop got, um, I think that cop was fired. Um, what was the settlement for the nurse uh, for her? I think her? that was about $500,000. $500,000. That's the quickest $500,000 that nurse ever made, you know. Right, uh, right. Of, for whatever reason, the loss of consortium or something like that. I don't know. But yeah. she got $500,000, which I thought was a very, very, very generous award kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Gregory, uh I think we're kind of at the end of our time here. Um, now, Dr. Tots, who's going to be our guest, suggested that we do, instead of a wine of the month, he suggested a, um, <laughs> a sake of the month. 
Yes. <laughs> yes, I was very surprised at that. We Because uh, uh, sake is rice wine. And what most people don't know is some of them are served warm, which is the way most of us do it. But the better quality sakis are often served cool or room temperature. And he was letting us in on this. Uh, give us give us the name of his sake there, Rick. Well, you know, when he said you drink sake warm is to hide the, some of the... Um, the lack of quality and that if you've got quality <laughs> sake, you drink it cold. And that in fact, in the summertime, cold sake is quite refreshing. He said, in any yes. case, this is not, this is all in the show notes that you'll get. It's called Kiku Masumi Taru Junmei Sake. It's like, it's got a first name, last name, middle name, this stuff. It sound, I thought this stuff was going to be outrageously expensive, you know, yeah. It's um, dry sake, gains its flavor from being aged in uh, uh, Japanese cedar, a traditional wood used to make sake barrels. Japanese cedar cask wouldn't, uh, would have been how the beverage was transported before modern packaging. It is still common in Japan to purchase a small cedar cask of sake for gatherings like you would a uh, a, 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 a a beer keg kind of thing. Or, so you could take this to your next COVID party. Yeah, yeah, your sake keg. Come in with your sake keg. This stuff is 18 bucks and is highly recommended by our guest, Ken Tots. So with that, Greg, I think we're going to sign off. I wish you well. I know that you are, this is a historical day for you in that you are listing your house for sale, your house of 35 years for sale. And that is a, a, one of these kind of major life passages. It, it is indeed, sir. And, uh, you know, at a certain point in time, two people don't need 5,000 square feet. And, and, and you have to come to deal with the fact that uh, it, it, it's down, time to shrink the entire program. I th- and I think that's what we're going to do. But thank you for recognizing the... Uh, stress and trauma of that event <laughs> you've held up very very well <laughs> you won't be holding up so well when you get the counter offers <laughs> on, on, you know, and and the other thing is greg i gotta advise you you know people say they listed my house and they sold it in one day the response to that is it was grossly underpriced right <laughs> <laughs> good, good work your realtor just wanted to dump that thing as quickly as they could. They'll take their four percent and and walk away. They're, yeah, they're, four the oh. hundred thousand doesn't mean much to them. Right, exactly. All right, well, Rick, uh, great time, and uh, we'll we'll join everybody next month. Okay, which well, is basically we have to acknowledge we're recording this very late in August, so we got another recording to do probably tomorrow for September. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Bye. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye now. Hi, I'm with Dr. Kenny Tots. Uh, Dr. Tots is a emergency physician and recent graduate of uh, law school. And I saw that he passed the California bar. Congratulations, Kenny. That's a big deal. Thank you very much. It was uh, uh, quite a bar to hurdle. Um, <laughs> I looked it up the past statistics because here in California, there's this move to lower the uh, passing grade on the California bar. But right now, 
41% of people who take that exam pass the first time around. And once you start taking it multiple times, the number starts dropping uh, uh, precipitously. So uh, congratulations. My wife uh, did it on one crack, but she holed up for better part of a month uh, with her girlfriend kind of studying and they and she passed as well uh thank you for coming with this kenny uh send us a email suggesting that we may have a little problem percolating here uh the fda is uh, making some recommendations regarding the um, prescription or recommendation for uh, naloxone in a broader range of patients than i think that we may have anticipated so uh, Kenny, uh, who's in Houston today? Yes. You're yes. Down, that's, that's where you live. I am. Well, I, I don't think Los Angeles can be any hotter or, or muggier than than Houston is today. It's like <laughs> we're going for a record. It was 126 in uh, Death Valley yesterday. Yikes. And um, it's going to be nasty. It's got 107 uh, today. But in any case, Kenny, would you uh, lead us through this and, and tell us where your concerns are? Sure. On July 23rd of this year, so just about three weeks ago, uh, the FDA put out a drug safety communication on their website. And the publication was uh, put forth in response to the uh, growing number of deaths from opioid overdose. And it was noted that there's been about 500,000 deaths in the last 20 years from opioid overdose, and 50,000 of those deaths have been in, uh, in 2019 alone. So on their website, they have three general classes of recommendations, and I'll go through, go through each one of those, and then we can uh, discuss uh, them a little bit more in detail, and I'll add some commentary about where my uh, concerns are. Most of the concerns are generally quite evident uh, to us as emergency physicians or uh, emergency practitioners. So the first recommendation here is for all patients who are prescribed opioid pain relievers. So for all those patients who are prescribed opioid pain relievers, they recommend that healthcare professionals should discuss the availability of naloxone and consider prescribing it to patients who are at increased risk of opioid overdose, such as patients who are also taking benzodiazepines or other medicines that depress the central nervous system, comma, who have a history of opioid use disorder, OUD, or who have experienced a previous opioid overdose. Healthcare professionals should also consider prescribing naloxone if the patient has household members, including children or other close contacts, at risk for accidental ingestion of opioid overdose. So let's take that first part. So if you're prescribing opioid pain relievers, you should consider prescribing naloxone to patients who are at increased risk of over, uh, opioid overdose who are also using either benzodiazepines or other medicines that depress the central nervous system. So now, when I was thinking about that, uh, I was uh, just kind of going through a list of medicines in my mind uh, besides benzodiazepines that might also um, make someone somnolent or 
depressed the central nervous system. And so I just came up with a quick list of blood pressure medicines like clonidine, metoprolol, atenolol, muscle relaxants like Robaxin and Flexeril, seizure medicines like Neurontin, Dilantin, Phenobarbital, depression and anxiety medicines like Elevil, Imipramine, Esketamine, uh, sleep aids like Ambien, Lunesta, other pain medicines like Fioracet, over-the-counter medicines, Benadryl, Meclizine, or other motion sickness medicines, um, and certainly uh, alcohol. So if anybody is taking one of those, uh, you should consider prescribing uh, naloxone to that group of uh, folks. Now, if they're recommending that we prescribe naloxone for those people that are concurrently taking those medicines, it would seem that the opposite would be true if uh, we're prescribing any of those blood pressure medicines, seizure medicines, depression medicines, refilling any of those medicines, and they're also taking an opioid from another provider, then perhaps we also should be prescribing uh, naloxone. Now, uh, you need to be constantly going over in your mind what happens if we don't prescribe naloxone and there's a bad outcome does does or do these recommendations on the FDA website, the governmental agency that uh, controls the labeling of all of our medicines, um, are, are they setting a standard of care here? So that second set of folks that uh, we should consider prescribing naloxone to those who have a history of opioid use disorder or who have experienced a previous uh, opioid overdose. Now, this leads into uh, an additional set of questions that we may be having to ask uh, during our historical acquisition. Uh, we're all uh, well aware of the multitude of questions that uh, nurses and or the practitioners ask uh, that really don't have a whole lot to do with anything. So somebody comes in with the ankle sprain and you're asking them if they feel safe at home, if they've traveled to West Africa, any tra other travel history. And now it's, uh, do you have a history of opioid use disorder or have you ever overdosed on an opioid? And if the answer to one of those questions is yes, then again, you should, can be, you should be considering prescribing that uh, person naloxone. And then this last recommendation uh, here in the first section is that healthcare professionals should also consider prescribing naloxone if the patient has household members, including children or other close contacts at risk for accidental ingestion or opioid overdose. Well, an accident by its very nature is an accident and was unintended. So anybody who comes in contact with any of any medicine can theoretically have an accidental ingestion. So if you live with anyone, any person that is, and there is a potential that that person can act like all the other humans that we come in contact with and have accidents, then perhaps you should uh, be prescribing uh, naloxone to that patient. Now, the second, second major uh, group of recommendations is for all patients who are prescribed medicines to treat opioid use disorder, OUD. And the recommendation here is that healthcare professionals should 
discuss the availability of naloxone and strongly consider prescribing it. So those medicines that are prescribed to treat opioid use disorders are those medicines like methadone, suboxone, or any other medicines that uh, contain buprenorphine or uh, other medicines such as that to treat opioid use disorder. The third general class of recommendations are for other patients at increased risk of opioid overdose. So increased risk of opioid overdose includes those people who are also taking those medicines uh, like blood pressure medicines and over-the-counter medicines and muscle relaxants. They suggest that healthcare professionals should consider prescribing naloxone, comma, even if the patient is not receiving a prescription for an opioid pain reliever or medicine to treat opioid use disorder. This may include people with a current or past diagnosis of opioid use disorder or who have experienced a previous opioid overdose. So again, even if you're not prescribing them an opioid, if they've had a prior history of overdose or have a current diagnosis of opioid use disorder and take one of these uh, uh, CNS sedating medicines, you should consider prescribing them naloxone. Now, the FDA, again, is the group of folks that are responsible for labeling all medicines. And when they label medicines, they give a list of side effects, adverse reactions, interactions of medicines. And the FDA makes this broad statement, giving naloxone to a person who has not taken an opioid medicine will not hurt them. I'm going to repeat that. Giving naloxone to a person who has not taken an opioid medicine will not hurt them. So I, I haven't heard of any medicine without any side effects. And so I looked up on uh, my uh, Hippocrates. That's what I use on my phone. And I noted the following uh, side effects of naloxone, VTAC, VFib, cardiac arrest, seizures, severe opioid withdrawal, tachycardia, hypertension, hypotension, and pulmonary edema. And as a matter of fact, I recall when I was taking my oral boards, there was a case of somebody who had overdosed on morphine and during the case vignette, I remember giving them naloxone and they showed me an x-ray and asked me to interpret the x-ray. And the x-ray was clearly somebody in pulmonary edema. And uh, I noted that after they had gotten naloxone. Now, this person had also taken opioids, but nevertheless, uh, it uh, can cause some problems. So the FDA then goes on to summarize the recommendations that I just, uh, I just stated, and then they go on uh, to discuss uh, many states have uh, naloxone available over the counter, and just looking at uh, some of the major 
uh, pharmacies like Walgreens and CVS. I noted that Walgreens offers over-the-counter naloxone in 45 states, uh, and that can be, again, uh, gotten without a, a prescription. They uh, suggest that if you do have naloxone, um, that uh, you tell your caregivers, household members, and other close contacts that you have it, where it is stored, and how to properly use it in the event of an overdose. And, uh, you know, this seems like a, a, a little unusual because most people aren't willing to tell everybody that they have a, an issue with opioids or that they've overdosed in the past, and I'm not sure many people are going to be very receptive to telling everybody that they know uh, where their naloxone is and how to use it on them. Lastly, the FDA uh, goes through the different forms of naloxone. They note that uh, there are three uh, different types of FDA-approved forms of naloxone. There's a nasal spray, an injectable, and an auto-injector. The auto-injector uh, goes uh, by the name of Evzio, E-V-Z-I-O, and it's made by uh, Kaleo Incorporated, K-A-L-E-O. It's a, a private company. And the brand name of Evzio uh, prices for just under $6,000 for a one milligram auto-injector, uh, making the EpiPen auto-injector seem uh, quite inexpensive. Uh, there is a generic version of this uh, of this form of the audio injector, and it is $208.12. Uh, there, there's some uh, also naloxone pre-filled syringes, and they go for $20 to $40 uh, per uh, syringe. That's a, a generic. And then lastly, there's the naloxone nasal spray. You get a little packet of two four milligram nasal sprays, and the brand name of that is um, made by Emergent Biosolutions. Uh, their stock ticker symbol is EBS, Echo Bravo Sierra, and Teva Pharmaceuticals stock symbol TEVA um, uh, has a generic version, and those sell for about $136. Now, I mentioned the, the stock symbols uh, because whenever anybody is making a broad recommendation especially to a very large group of providers. Uh, the thought goes through my mind, uh, somebody is going to be making money or somebody wants to make uh, money on this. I'm not saying that's the uh, motivation uh, from the FDA, but I just looked at uh, EBS, uh, Emergent Biosolutions. That's the company that, that's the only uh, uh, public company besides Teva. Uh, they make the brand name of the nasal spray, which is certainly the easiest to administer. And I noted on July 23rd, when these recommendations first came out, the stock price was $88.91. I just checked the stock price yesterday on the 14th of August, and it was $133. That's quite, uh, quite a, a, a jump. Wow, a nice opportunity for some insider trading here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and 
those recommendations can be can be found on the FDA website, fda.gov, fda.gov, and um, and and that is that is the totality of those recommendations. I have the uh, link uh, in the show notes. Um, I also noted that this is kind of typical of these ridiculous injectors. The four thousand dollar injector is being uh, offered at a generic price by the same maker who makes the $4,000 injector. We'll sell it to you for um, $178. So I read on the um, internet. Now, whether that in fact has materialized or not, the $4,000 injector talks to you when you open it, it gives you all the instructions about how to where to uh, inject this stuff. It's an auto injector uh, as well. So it's yep. got a little bit more technology um, about it, but uh, it seems to me that the most straightforward kind of thing are these syringes that you can get that are pre-filled and you just kind of take the cap off and go to it. Um, so this I do think uh, presents some uh, increased risk. You ought to know about it for sure. And dissemination of guidelines is really one of the hardest things. It's it's hard to make guidelines in the first place, whether it be uh, about pulmonary embolism diagnosis or, or giving out uh, naloxone. So making guidelines is one thing. Uh, this disseminating guidelines is another thing. Huge, huge, huge task. And then the embracing of guidelines. So the easiest part by far is for these guys to write this paragraph and, and say, go to it guys. And, but yeah, doing, as we did, getting it yeah. done. Is yeah. A, as we discussed, story. yeah, as we discussed, uh, uh, um, earlier, you know, case law may uh, further develop these recommendations and it's uh, nice for your, uh, your your readers and subscribers to know about these things uh, ahead of time so they don't uh, become part of the case law and they can uh, avoid that uh, particular issue. Yeah, these things are quite expensive if you have insurance um, or if you don't have insurance, even if it's over the counter, not too many people who are at risk for opioid overdose, uh, I'm thinking, are going to be able to perform, uh, afford even a twenty to forty dollar pre-filled syringe uh, for for one of these uh, naloxone uh, forms. You're uh, writing an article for ASAP now, which uh, goes to about forty thousand souls. So hopefully they'll make a front page story out of this for you. Oh, that'd be great. Yes, I submitted that uh, last month on the the day that these recommendations uh, came out. So even if they elect not to uh, not to publish it. Uh, you know, hopefully your readers uh, will benefit from this information. Well, I got to think that the uh, ASAP will feel that this is an important story as you do. And I do. Uh, Kenny, thanks so much for getting up on a Saturday morning to do this with us. Uh, I won't go through the, the too much of the story where you and I did a, an entire taping with Greg <laughs> Henry and you were commenting throughout and uh, through the magic of science, we, Somehow it was everything that could go wrong did go wrong and we lost that. But thank you for much so much for coming back uh, and uh, repeating this segment. Um, I'm hoping that you'll be with us in the future. Uh, boys and girls, I think that's it for 
the August issue of Risk Management Monthly. Thank you for listening. Uh, we welcome your comments, as always. Uh, we will be uh, discreet with them. Uh, it doesn't. We we just want we just want to have an opportunity to talk about risks in uh, emergency medicine. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thanks, Rick.